Uh, in the back, as we heard, there was a great Lessons and Carols service last night, and Wilson and the Creative Arts Ministry, one of the things they invited us to do was to draw pictures, paint pictures on this canvas about what we hoped that the new heavens and the new earth would be like, what it would be like when Jesus comes back and renews and restores and redeems all things. Now, most of the adults were singing and listening to the lessons last night, so it ended up being a, a kid's rendition. All the kids got to paint what they thought it was going to look like. But the Creative Arts Ministry have brought another canvas that they're encouraging adults to go back and to put something, a little picture, a phrase, something like that, uh, to symbolize, to show forth what we hope things will look like when Jesus comes and renews and restores all things. And that's kind of the heart of Advent, right, is inviting us into longing for Jesus' return. It is waiting and preparing for Jesus to come back in power and glory to restore and redeem and renew all things. But part of Christmas itself is reminding us that Jesus has already come once in weakness and humility, and Jesus is currently at work renewing and restoring and redeeming all things in our world today. But how is he doing that? Let's listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say as he writes his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's Word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray for us this morning. Oh God, as we come to your word in this time of year, we acknowledge that it's very easy for us to get caught up in all of the things going on around us, in the dreary weather, in the festivities, in the schedules, the work that needs to be done, the family that's coming into town. All that stuff can distract us. And so I pray this morning that you would send your spirit into our hearts to help us become more aware of how you are at work in our lives, of where you are changing and restoring and redeeming things. I pray that through your Spirit we would hear the words of life this morning. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Smell is incredibly important. It's incredibly powerful. Right? It is through smells that some people can pick out specific ingredients of a recipe. Right? It's through smell that you might be invited into a room, maybe the kitchen. It's a smell that might actually fend you off, make you run away from certain areas. We've all learned over the past couple of years that smell and taste are inextricably linked. We also know that smell is deeply rooted in our memories, right? Smells can often bring us back to a good place and time. 
We're going through Full House, the 1990 sitcom, with my two daughters, and it's so much fun to watch it with them and remember being a child and watching it with my family on TGIF, the ABC's Friday night lineup. And the other day, it's been a while since we'd watched an episode, and I was in the kitchen washing the dishes, and as soon as I heard the theme song, whatever happened to predictability, I was back at home as a little kid. And I could smell the hot air popcorn popper that we used every week to eat popcorn. There was no popcorn in my house just this other day, but there was growing up. And I could smell it as if I was there. But smell doesn't just take us back to good memories. Smell can actually remind us of hard things, right? There is a certain type of cleaner that has just the right amount of ammonia in it that when I smell it, I'm back as a five-year-old and Shan's Hospital in Gainesville, where I spent a lot of time for childhood cancer treatments. One smell, and I'm right back in the hospital. Christmas, we can all agree, has some specific smells associated with it. Maybe it's the fir tree or the wreath on your front door, cranberries, maybe cinnamon. Perhaps it's the fire burning in the fireplace. What does Christmas smell like to you? Here's a more passage-appropriate question. What do you smell like at Christmas time? See, Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ. People can smell Jesus on us. That sounds kind of funny, especially at Christmas time. The last thing we want is to smell, but we can all agree that we want more Jesus in our lives, particularly if we're talking about this Jesus that's going to be engaging in our lives, that's going to be entering into our relationships and our situations, changing them, renewing them, restoring them, we want more of that Jesus. Christmas is about Jesus. He is, as we hear so often, the reason for the season. So why would we not want more of Him? To focus more on Him, to remember His incarnation, more of Him in our lives. When it comes to injecting Jesus into our relationships, we tend to think that we have to do and say the right things. We have to make a stand. We have to keep Christ in Christmas, and we have to keep Christmas on those red cups, as if Jesus only changes things when we are fighting. But God tells us something different here in Paul's words. God says, it's God who works. Jesus in, Jesus out, and people will respond. Three points for us this morning, starting with the reality that God works. God works, obviously the antithesis of you working, you having to do the things, right? This is something that we talk about regularly at Grace, that we stumble into this belief that if we want change in our lives, then I have lots of work to do, that the best response is for me to be the change. I need to do more good, to behave better. I need to be a better Christian. I need to work harder. We often believe the same thing about Jesus transforming our lives and our relationships and the people around us. We have to have the right thing to say. We have to be able to do the right thing. We have to be prepared whenever some quote-unquote opportunity comes along. And our response, it better be good. I saw a video this past week of Tim Tebow, who was the Heisman-winning national champion quarterback at the University of Florida when I was there. Love the guy. Great guy. But sometimes he's a little much. 
Six foot three, 250 pounds, basically my size, but pure muscle. And in the video, he was at Top Golf. And when you're that size and you're that strong, you don't hit golf balls, you crush them. And in the video, he swings, the ball goes flying, and someone out of view says, Jesus, and without missing a beat, he says, loves you. It was great. It was silly, right? Maybe you think, if I want Jesus to impact people around me, I have to be ready like that. I have to be prepared to say the thing that's going to make people laugh a little bit, but then when they walk away, they're going to think about it later. Maybe you think instead of being prepared in, whenever an opportunity comes up, maybe you think I am going to have to fight. I have to make sure that the year-end holiday break on my work calendar is actually listed as Christmas. Maybe you think those two are too much, too out there. Chances are, though, you think about how hard a personal conversation might be. I was just talking with one of my daughters about this the other day. She was expressing how challenging it is for her to invite friends who don't go to church to come to church things because she's worried they might be offended that something that happens there is not what they believe. They might be confused at what they experience, and, she said, they may be so hurt they never talk to me again. And as a parent, it was so easy for me to say, That's, you don't have to worry about how they respond. If you think that they would enjoy whatever you're going to invite them to, if you are going to have a good time with them wherever you're inviting them, then you can invite them. They have the ability to say no. They have the ability not to come. It's not your responsibility to worry about their response. All you have to do is invite them. And yet, that is the exact same reason that prevents me from inviting people to church things often. You see, when we believe that the work of Jesus in the world around us, in the people around us, is tied to my effort, is tied to our actions, then it's easy to become fearful of what would happen if it goes wrong. It's easy to be discouraged when things don't go well. And so often, we just don't do anything at all. We get lulled into this belief that God really isn't working in the lives of those people out there because I'm not doing anything either. Paul tells us something different in verse 14. He writes, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. The language that Paul uses, the picture that he paints, is of a triumphal parade that Rome would throw often after conquering a new people group. They would bring those people as slaves in through the streets of Rome with fanfare, with rose petals everywhere, with lots of incense. This newly conquered people would be shown off as subjects to Caesar. And Paul is saying, God, God has won victory in our lives through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and He leads us wherever He wants us. And word of His deeds in Christ and His victory through His death and resurrection are proclaimed through us in whatever way God wants. If we have been conquered, if we are under His command, to use the military analogy that Paul does, then we do whatever God says. He is in charge. God is the one who is at work. And as Paul says here, it is God who spreads 
the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. You do not, as a Christian, waft your own fragrance towards people. You don't even waft the fragrance of Jesus towards people. God is the one who through you wafts the fragrance of Jesus. God is the one who is at work. It's not on you. God is doing it through you, but how? That's the question. How is God doing this? Paul tells us it's Jesus in, Jesus out. Our second point, Jesus in, Jesus out. We are the aroma of Christ to God, Paul says. The smell, because Jesus is in you, as we talked about last week, Jesus comes out of you. If you are following Jesus, you smell like Jesus. We understand this principle, right? If you've ever had a really good batch of garlic fries, maybe at a Giants baseball game up in the city, you know and understand that after you eat garlic fries, for the rest of the day, your breath and your burps are going to smell like garlic, right? Ed is in the back going, see, you just listen to me, didn't eat garlic, everything would be better. You don't have a choice. You're going to smell like garlic. If Jesus is in you, you don't have a choice. The Jesus is going to be coming out of you in your words, your reactions, your responses. Now, that might sound passive, right? Oh, let me just sit back and let the odor of Jesus emanate, do its thing. But like garlic fries, the more you take in, the more that you'll smell. And the longer lasting that smell will be. So let me ask you, are you taking in Jesus? Are you spending time with Him in prayer? Are you reading about Him? Are you reading with Him in meditation? How are you worshiping Him? How are you listening to Him? Because the more Jesus that you feast on, the more Jesus comes out of you. And that's the good part. But here's the hard part. Paul uses these two words, fragrance and aroma, and they carry more context than just a smell, right? This isn't the comfortable, lovely idea of perfume. But these two words are actually the same words used throughout the Old Testament to talk about the smell of the burnt offerings of the Old Testament, right? If you, might, you might remember that in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were commanded by God to offer sacrifices every day, right? Animals killed, blood shed, in order to remind them that their sin had caused them to have a broken relationship with God, that they were dirty, and that they had to be cleaned in order to be in His presence. But they had to offer those sacrifices every single day because the blood of bulls and goats actually couldn't clean them up. It was a pointer to the fact that one day God Himself would have to offer a sacrifice blood would have to be shed that was perfect enough to actually clean His people, to actually repair the broken relationship caused by sin. And we see very clearly in Scripture that Jesus is that sacrifice that all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament look forward to, that Jesus' death on the cross, the shedding of His blood, is the only sacrifice that can actually cleanse us from our sin can actually bring us back into relationship with God. You see, the smell of Jesus is the smell of sacrifice and suffering. 
and it comes out most in your life in sacrifice and suffering, the very things that we are looking to avoid at this time of year. The Sunday after Thanksgiving is our Sunday to decorate our house for Christmas. We get home after church, we put on the music, get all the boxes out of the shed, we put up the fake tree, all the ornaments, all the stockings, the lights, everything. It's tons of work, but it's so much fun. And then we pack all the boxes away, I sweep up all of the fake tree needles that are all over the ground every year, and then the girls go to bed, we finish cleaning up, and it seems every year that that's when I take the picture of our living room, when it is nice and clean. Dark outside, brilliant white lights, red stockings over the fireplace. It is so clean. But the reality is that room for the rest of the month and into January is covered in trash. There are Legos strewn everywhere, pieces of wrapping paper, leftover snack wrappers just littering that room because that's the room where our girls want to be because it has all of the festivity in it. But I like to capture that one moment where everything is clean. And more often than not, that's the picture that I post online, the clean one, the nice one. And I think that's a perfect example of how we want to present ourselves. We don't like the idea that life is messy, that reality is chaotic. We get embarrassed by that. We don't want people to see us as messy, flawed individuals. And so we either work really hard to clean ourselves up or we just keep people away, keep them on the periphery. I'm not just talking about our houses, right? I am talking about our lives. When people ask how you're doing, chances are you have a nice pat answer to respond to. I'm doing good, working hard, you know, I'm tired today, working for the weekend, whatever it is, it's not indicative of how you are actually doing because we only want people to see the good, clean parts of us. We don't like the messiness. We don't like the suffering that we're actually going through. But what we see an invitation to here is to let people in, to let people recognize truth in us. And the thing that gives us the strength to actually be who we really are, as messy and flawed as we really are, is knowing that Jesus is in us renewing, restoring, redeeming the mess, and we know that He will come back and finish it so we can let people in to what's really going on, to who we really are, and people will respond. Our last point, people will respond. If you want your friends and your family to experience Jesus, if you want to see Jesus at work in the world around you, you actually have to let people in. Right? If you were going to work hard to make a nice dinner for your friends, you would not keep them outside for fear that they might see the dirty dishes in your kitchen. You would invite them in. Let them sit around while you are working. Talk with them, even though the kitchen is a mess. That's what we are being invited into. And yet we know that this is a very scary thing. It's a very intimidating thing because as Paul says here, to some people, this fragrance of Jesus, of suffering, of struggle, is a fragrance from life to life, but to others, it's a fragrance from death to death. But what does that even mean? What is he talking about here? 
Well, the reality is that true weakness and true vulnerability don't actually have a whole lot of value in our culture. Yes, we can fake a little bit of of hardship. Yes, we can talk about our insecurities so far. But if you get real with people, if you start talking about your sin, about your failure, if you lay everything out on the table, that just is too much. It's too weak. Right there, it's like self-sabotage to be that vulnerable and open, that messy with people. Right? Celebrating the birth of a tiny, weak baby thousands of years ago and orienting your life around this infant, that's ridiculous to those who do not understand His significance. To those who are perishing, this idea of Jesus in us and Jesus through us just smells like death. And they're right. Jesus came in weakness and humility, and He died. But to those who are being saved, as Paul says, this suffering is something they can identify with, right? Suffering and struggle, it's ubiquitous. We all experience it at some point in our lives. And when you take the bold step to let someone else in, whether they're struggling or suffering at the same time or not, there is something in you that helps a person say, I'm not alone. And when they hear how Jesus could possibly be redeeming and using suffering and struggle, restoring you in some way through it, it is like casting a lifeline out into the choppy sea. Someone who might be drowning in their struggles, might be drowning in their suffering, hears about a God who cares enough to come and enter into suffering, enter into struggle, and put up with it, suffer Himself to redeem our suffering. That is true hope. But they will never hear it if you try to paint a picture that is nice and glossy with clean lines. It's a bold step. It's a hard step. It may be too literal, but when we heard the passage from Matthew in our time of renewal read, John the Baptist is a great example of this. Here is a guy who was called by God to be a Nazarite, to live outside of most of societal expectations. He never cut his hair or beard. He didn't have any fun at parties. He didn't drink. He wore clothes made out of camel hair. That didn't smell good. He ate locusts and wild honey. What do you think he smelled like? But he still came and proclaimed the message of Christ. He was challenged, charged by God to proclaim Jesus is coming. And when he showed up, there were plenty of people who said, the God I believe in would never do anything like that. That's ridiculous. That's humiliating. What a joke. And then there were plenty of people who said, this guy's on to something. And when Jesus showed up, they heard the words of John the Baptist, and they saw the actions of Jesus, and they said, this is it. This crazy, wild, chaotic, somewhat insane guy knew what he was talking about all along. He was throwing the lifeline of hope to us, and here he is, Jesus. The first sermon that I ever preached as an intern in seminary, I spent a long time working on, hours, maybe 40 hours, going through the exact seminary process. 
reading the passage in English, reading the passage in Greek, outlining it, diagramming it, building my argument, getting an outline, connecting the theological dots, finding the perfect illustrations, illustrations that were very personal and relatable so that everybody could understand anything. I, I used an illustration of how the cancer treatment I had when I was a kid had, has been causing daily headaches in me now for 30 years later. I ended with a great challenge to the congregation, asking them to chew on the passage for the rest of the day, all this kind of stuff. And after the service, no one said anything. It was awesome. I figured, you know what, they're actually, they're chewing on the passage. That's what I asked them to do. They don't want to talk to me. They're doing what I asked them to do. So the next week I came to church and nobody said anything. Great. This is so encouraging. The third week, though, during our community time, when we all said hi to each other, see, every church does it, not just here. As we were saying hi to each other, the guy behind me said, yeah, you preached a couple weeks ago. I've been meaning to talk to you. I loved your sermon. I would love to talk more about it. And in that instant, I thought, boom, all the hard work had paid off. Here is someone who heard an amazing theological point that they had never heard before. Something that I said about those Greek words that I used really touched them, and now they want more. They want to hear more about all of this stuff. And in the next breath, he said, over the last two months, I've had headaches every single day. And when you said that you do too, I was just wondering if we could get together and talk about that. It was powerful because it was the thing that I thought was least important in that sermon. I didn't even consider that it was the thing that might smell the most like Jesus. And I don't know if talking about it that way or meeting with him later ever changed his life. All I know is that he smelled Jesus in my suffering. And when we met and we talked and he shared about his suffering and we prayed together, I smell Jesus on him. Who are you trying to smell like this Christmas? Let's pray. Oh God, we come this morning in the midst of hardship, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering, maybe not right now, but we know it is going on around us. And we confess that we're trying to clean it up, to present a picture of ourselves that is not real that is not authentic, but we think is important. Help us to see that the humility and suffering of Jesus is actually a lifeline, a picture of hope to those around us. And help us to see that His victory over sin and death as He rose from the grave gives us the strength to be able to admit our own weakness, our own suffering, our own sin, and help us to believe that when we do, People experience Jesus in it. We pray in His mighty and powerful name. Amen.